Lord, we don't want to hear my words, my thoughts, my opinions. We just want to hear your truth. So just use me, say what you want to say through me, speak through me, God, that people would understand that you want nothing more than to be completely unified with us in everything we do. Thank you for being jealous for us, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thank you, Floyd. Ah, it's a good night. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in this teaching of the entire Song of Solomon, and we're in chapter 5, but week 16, so we've been taking our time with this. Some people are like, keep on going. Some people are like, when are you going to move on? And uh, we're going to move on when we finish it up. Uh, so um, probably in like 45 weeks. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Not really. So just to kind of catch you up, there's two main characters in the Song of Solomon. There's the Shulamite woman and King Solomon. Uh, the beloved, as we call both of them. She is his beloved and he is her beloved. And what we've been talking about is not so much focusing on the earthly relationship between this woman and the king, but how it's a picture of the relationship between the bride and the bridegroom. The bride being the church, the bridegroom being God. And what our uh, ability is, if you will, to have not just a relationship of belief, but an intimate relationship walking with him every single second of our life. Last week we saw a principle of mutual submission. We saw that the woman gave herself to the king. And she went from referencing as her garden to his garden. Not to get necessarily specific in the details, but they were consummating their marriage. They were going to the marriage bed. And what she was calling hers, what she was now calling his. And when she referenced her entire self as his, the king's, the king received that and then gave her access and authority and even a ownership, if you will, of all of his belongings. Since she gave himself to him, he said, all I've got, I'm giving to you. And it's a picture of the bride saying, here I am, here's all of me. And the king's response is, well, look what I have for you. We actually see a picture of this, and we discussed this last week, but I felt like it was so good and spot on that we need to read it again. Paul was talking to the church, the apostle Paul, about marriage. And what he says concerning marriage, which is exactly what we see in mutual submission, is this. In 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And then the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Now, we always look at that as a picture of the literal marriage relationship between a woman and her husband. But where we went with it last week was that we understood that when we submit our ability to govern ourselves to God the bride submitting to the groom, that he in turn entrusts us with authority over everything that is his. And it's important to understand something in that, that God owns everything. Everything. Nothing that is yours is actually yours. And when you start to really understand that, you start to understand principles of the kingdom. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's, and what? Everything in it. There's a, we see something very interesting when Jesus is going into Jerusalem about five days before he was crucified. He was about to come riding in on a donkey or a colt. But first he had to get the donkey. 
He had to get the coal. And we see this principle of God owning everything when we read the scripture in Luke 19, 29 through 31. It says, as he, Jesus, came to the towns of, of, of Bethphage and Bethany on the, Mount, on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Going into, go into that village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. And in the original language, the Lord actually specifically means its owner. So when Jesus was coming into the town, he didn't say, may I borrow your colt? He said, the owner has need of what you've been stewarding as yours. We see a literal picture that even the stuff that's yours is not yours. That everything is the Lord's. So it turns from let me use my life for God's glory versus let me steward all that I have that is his in the first place, which is in turn giving him glory. The gifts you have are actually his imparted into yours. So it's wasteful to use the gifts for your glory. We steward those for his. Every, everything, not just spiritual things, but even the physical things. There's a reason you have a house. There's a reason you have a car. There's a reason you have money. And it's not to say, look what I have. It's look what God gave me to steward. And the more you steward those things in his way, the more, sees, the more he sees you as fit to steward more. Let me see you, what you do with what you got so that I can trust you with all that I have. Submit your ways to me, and I will give you access to whatever I say that you need for my glory. So you have, is, is that okay? So you have this picture of this mutual submission being very beneficial, not only to you, but even to God. Because God is so good and so perfect that he says, I still want this world governed by the ones I created to govern it, you. That's why it was better for Jesus to leave. Because he says, I don't want to create a church that is dependent on one physical man. I want to create a church who's redeemed by one physical man. And dependent on the Holy Spirit that is everywhere. Dependent on God the Father, his voice. Dependent on the word of God, Jesus, which is the spoken word from the Father. The three in one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So these two in the story at this point, They've given themselves to each other, and now she starts to dream about him. That's a pretty good sign, right? But the dream is actually kind of a little bit of an issue because what we see in this dream is a little bit of a contention for the first time or a little tension between the bride and the bridegroom. So in the Song of Solomon, starting in verse 2, because last week the entire message was on verse 1, it says this, I slept. But my heart was awake. When I heard my lover knocking and calling, open to me my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I'm going to read that again. I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. After engaging in the most intimate place, in the bridal chambers, the bedroom, giving themselves to each other on their wedding night, she says, 
I'm sleeping, but my heart is still with you. My heart is awake. In other words, the bridegroom has my heart, she says, but her affections, if you will, or the actions of her heart have cooled off a little. She was in a slumber of her affections toward him. How do we know she was in a little bit of a slumber? Because chapters before, if he came knocking, she would have said, let's go. She would have gotten that door, opened that door and said, hey boy, hey. But instead, she's in a slumber. She's doing her. She, hey, hey, I love you, but I'm sleeping. And many times, someone said that's marriage. <laughs> Dang. There's counseling afterwards. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get in trouble tonight. And many times, believers are in that same state of spiritual slumber. Where God has our heart, he has our love. But when he comes knocking, we're very slow to answer and do anything with it. It actually speaks about this in Revelation 3.20. He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And we'll share a meal together as friends. You see, the fact of the matter is, God's not going to bust down the door to get to you. But he will knock until you allow him into the most intimate place. And what happens oftentimes is we have these spiritual highs, just like this woman has had this past four chapters. We're seeing our identity in Christ. We're understanding who we are. We're seeing miracles, signs, and wonders. And then we get comfortable. Things start to become natural. If I may just really dig deep and get straight to it, we went through a season at Relentless even where we were seeing stupid miracles every, every, every day. And it became so familiar that I think we entered into a state of slumber. Where we just came because it was Saturday. But, but people stopped coming with the excitement when they saw the woman in the wheelchair get up over a year ago. It was just, it's our thing. We come here on Saturdays. And I think we have entered into a slumber, if you will, of we're just getting used to the motions of, I come to worship. But we need to realize something. We're coming together to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's nothing to take casually. And we have got to wake up from a, this is just how it is slumber, to a, I cannot wait to say yes to the Lord. Many times we're in this state of slumber and God's knocking and the danger of a spiritual slumber is that when you sleep or when you go totally unaware, it's the place where the enemy finds the place to work. It says, that, it says this in Matthew 13, 24 through 25. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. And God has dispersed seed after seed after seed, but the workers have slept and become unaware to the enemy corrupting good things. That's why the church is in such a state of confusion because our slumber has been we go to church on Sundays and we believe in Christ. And all the while, the, the enemy 
is getting in and planting weeds among the seeds like seeds of love, he's corrupted into perverted love, right? Or order in the church, which is very godly, has become religion. He, he's been perverting all these things because we have been, and when I say we in this moment, I'm not talking just about relentless, I'm talking about the church at large. We have been in this slumber of church is just one thing we do on the schedule and we're not putting God as a priority, we're putting him as one of the items. And our sleep is what we often call we're just waiting on God. When God has actually told us the harvest is great, but the workers are few. See, we have got to, is this, is this hitting home already? We've got to understand that there is no time to go into a spiritual slumber. The word wait on God does not mean take your time for him to show up. Waiting there in the literal means as a waiter serves like at a restaurant. To wait on God means to do something. Not go to sleep. It's to say, God, what would you have me do? Not just, God, what would you have me pray about? Because we, we're, we're, we're called to pray at all times. Let's not get that mixed up. But we're not only called to pray at all times. Prayer is the conversation that actually initiates the action. Not the conversation that replaces one. See, the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, I think the church of today can relate to it. When it starts off the entire letter, it describes the church. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. And In other words, like there's good things going on in this church. And he says, I know all the things you do and you have a reputation for being alive. But you're dead. Another way to say it, you have a reputation for being ready to serve God as his bride, but you're asleep. He has your heart, but you're in a state of slumber. You're in a state of not being ready when he knocks at the door. And the key to knowing that your heart is given to him is his voice awakens you from spiritual slumber and you're able to identify that voice as God or something else. And if you're at a place where you don't really know if you can identify the voice of God, I actually would put forth to you, have you actually given yourself to relationship? Or you just claim him as yours for when you come here once a week? Because the key to recognizing voices is a relationship. There are many of you in here, if you called and I had no caller ID, and I said hello and you said hey, I would know who you were. Not because I saw you, but because I'm familiar with your voice. There are others who might call me that I would have no idea who you were. And I feel like that's kind of some of the state of slumber some of us are in. We're, we are so rested in the normal routine that when God starts speaking, we don't even recognize it as God. We actually have to pray, is this the voice of God? I believe that's actually more of a problem than it is a posture of humility. Whenever God says something, I should be able to recognize it because I'm so familiar with him. The king, Solomon, is doing exactly what God wants to do. He says, hey, I'm here knocking. 
come to me. But she doesn't open the door. And then he starts doing exactly what God does to us. Praises her. You're my treasure, my darling, my perfect one. I think that's kind of slumber a lot of us has been in. We've been hearing this, I am, I am my beloved's, I am, I am worthy, I'm righteous, I'm the spotless bride, yay. But we're, we're still in a slumber because we love to hear the affirmations and the accolades. And he's saying, hey, I'm here, I'm knocking, you're beautiful, you're perfect, you're my darling. She still doesn't come to the door. So then King Solomon actually begins to describe what he has endured in seeking after his beloved bride. He says, I've been out all night. How do we know that? He says, the dew is in my hair. My hair is drenched. He was watching over everything, and he says, I've got dew in the night. My hair is drenched. I just want to come in. I've been out looking over the fields for you. I've been tending over all these things for you. I just want to come in. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. That's kind of interesting. That's why he never wanted us to eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because his eye was on it. See, God is continually watching and working in your favor. And when he comes knocking, we usually find every excuse not to answer. And we say things like, I'm not ready. Or it isn't time yet. Or I'm still learning about that. Or I don't know how to pray. And God's like, I just want to come in. And maybe he wants to come in sometimes to highlight what the enemy is trying to spoil while you've been in your spiritual slumber because he's got his eye on what? The good and the evil. And we'll miss the warnings because we, because we become so passive. I'm not sure if this is like y'all are resonating or, okay, there's a lot of. We miss the warning because we, we become so passive. When oftentimes God's like, I need to tell you what's going on. I need to tell you what's going on with your son, your daughter. The people who say they love you, I need to tell you what's going on, right? Hey, you're not talking to me, and I'm trying to tell you what's going on. Let me in, let me in, let me in. And you know what the Shulamite woman does? She gives excuses just like we do, like the I'm not ready, like the this isn't for me. Look at what she says in verse 3. But I responded. I've taken off my robe. You want me to get dressed again? I've washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? She says, I'm in my bed. Do I need to get ready for you? I've washed my feet. I don't want to get them dirty on this floor. I'm tired. I ain't swept the floor yet. I don't want to get all messed up. Do I need to do this to come see you? You see, people love to answer the call of God when it's convenient. And many times we don't answer a call because we view it as an inconvenience. I'm not ready to move on from this place. So God, you don't get to come in. Or maybe I love this place too much to move on. And the place you're staying is exactly where God wants to pull you out of. But you love the sleep. You love the slumber. You love the I just want to stay here another moment. 
And sometimes it's actually our way of controlling a relationship with God rather than simply being fully submitted to him. Letting God in is a mindset of whatever you want, whenever you want. Not whatever you want when it works for me. See, the issue is not that the bride doesn't doesn't go to the door. The issue is she doesn't go at once. She was slow. She was reluctant. And part of this reluctancy is I've taken off my robe. I've taken off my garments. I don't want to get dirty. You see, garments in the Bible are actually used to point toward forms of righteousness. It was the garments. You had clean garments, which was righteous, and you had dirty garments, which was what? Unrighteous. She has laid aside her self-righteousness and has taken up true righteousness. She has taken off all of her clothes, literally and figuratively, because remember, this is the marriage bedroom. She is fully exposed before her king. She was naked, exposed, pure, true as self. In other words, when she took off her garments, her self-garments, her self-clothing, her self-righteousness, she was actually redeemed in a posture of Garden of Eden status. Naked. Fully exposed before the king. And when she got sleepy, her first response when she heard the voice of God was to put her clothes back on. We read that somewhere else. Look at Genesis 3, 9 through 10. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid. I was naked. They heard God, and they made clothes. When she heard knocking from the king, her first response was, I can't let you in until I clothe myself. If you are still saying no to God because of all of your stuff, That is the fig leaf clothes of unrighteousness in your mindset. God, I cannot come to you because I've got all this stuff. You are trying to hide yourself instead of being vulnerable. Letting God in is believing you are righteous so much that you are willing for everything to be exposed before the throne room and allow God to make a demand on you, even though at times you may feel unworthy. Because the truth is, he made you worthy. And when he calls on you and knocks on the door, saying, I'm not ready, is actually putting back on clothes of unrighteousness. Instead of accepting for the fact that you don't need your clothing because you are now clothed in his righteousness. And what spiritual slumber does is you become more familiar with your protection, your clothes, than saying, yes, God, to whatever. And that's how we get lost in vices, immoralities. We get lost in the creature covenants of the world because we're familiar with that stuff. God never wanted Adam and Eve to cover up. He wanted them completely pure, unclothed, uncovered, relying on the covering that was his gaze. This was where that woman was for a moment. And if we can be honest, I think that's where we we all get at moments. We have those divine connections with God, whether it be 
in a church service or maybe outside one day and you're having a, a moment or maybe you're you know, studying the word and you just had this moment of I am totally exposed before God. And before you know it, you get in the spiritual slumber when you realize you have nothing to hide. But we get more familiar with hiding and we get kind of lost in ourselves. And then before you know it, because we get lost in ourselves, when he knocks, we don't even recognize his voice. The key to being ready to answer God's call or his knock is actually believing that you are worthy for his knock. Because when you don't, you hide, you make excuses, and you miss it. See, this is the first time the Shulamite woman and the King Solomon has some sort of issue in the marriage. Now, this is a dream, but this is kind of a tension. He wanted her, but she was slow to answer. And slumber is not just in a walk with God. I think sometimes we need to ask ourselves the tough questions about, are we in a state of slumber? Like, are you in a state of slumber in your marriage? Do you date her like you did at first? Are you intentionally serving each other like you did or do you take each other for granted? Are you in a slumber in your finances? Are you coasting or do you put intention behind every dollar? Are you in a slumber in your dreams and visions for your life? Are you too tired to work toward a vision? Or do you realize that you need to wake up to a vision instead of letting life pass you by? Get out of your slumber. It's time for the church to wake up. I know I joke around about it all the time, but one of the biggest perversions of the enemy right now is the get woke movement because God's been telling us to get woke for a long time. We need to wake up. Look at this in verses four through five. My lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart was thrilled within me. I jumped up to open the door for my love and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. Notice, his hand was on the latch, but he didn't open it. The hand on the latch was another attempt at the king wanting her to know he wanted to get in. In other words, if you won't do it on your own, the Holy Spirit will start getting his handle on you, if you will, in the form of conviction for you to do something. That's the grace of God. That even when you won't answer, he will put his hand or his spirit to work and touch your mind, touch your heart, touch your soul, so that you can see and finally respond. But it ain't God who's going to make you do it. You still have to be the one to turn the key, turn the latch, open the door. But again, she didn't just go open the door. Because if you see, when she finally gets to the door, it says her hands are dripping in perfume and myrrh. You see, he said, I've been out all night. The dew is covering my hair. My hair is drenched. So it, traditionally back then, when the husband or the groom would come in from a long day, one of the best refreshings, if you will, was when he would get anointed over his head. So what the bride did was instead of just getting to the door, she said, well, let me prepare for the king. Let me dip my hands in this perfume. Let me dip my hands in this ointment so that I can go get ready to anoint him. And what happens is she, didn't need to go, she did not need to get ready to answer. She needed to answer and then do whatever he said. 
And I think that's a lot of times what we do in the, in the church. We spend too much time in the ointment of prayer, and by the time you answer the call, he's moved on. Okay. We spend too much time in the ointment of prayer, and by the time you answer his call, he's moved on. You spend more time praying about, is this you, because you simply don't believe that he thinks that much of you for you to answer that call. Are you sure, God? I don't know if this is God's voice. You know it's his voice. You're just scared of what he's saying. So we just keep dipping our hands. I'm just preparing to make sure that I can say yes. And God's like, you don't need to prepare. To just, just, just say it. Yes, let me in. I'll show you what you need. I'll walk you through what, what's going to get you there. Just say yes to me. Let me in. He wants the faith walk, not let me get ready, God. He says when he, get, when he calls you, he sees that you are ready. You think God's bad at timing? I feel this call in my life, but, but I've got to get ready. If you recognize a call, he called you. Isn't that revelatory? That's, that, that's like getting a call on your phone from like, like you know, mom and you, you, you see, or, or dad, and you, you see the caller ID, and for five days straight they're calling, and you say, I know they're calling, but I'm just, I, you know, I, I, wish, I wish they would tell me what they want me to talk about. Answer the phone to find out. But that's what we do. We, we oh, they're calling. Dip my hand in the ointment. God's calling. Dip my hand in the ointment. Dip my hand in the ointment. And God's like, I want to come in. So then he starts getting the Holy Spirit to put a hand on the handle. You know you need to answer. Even right now, you know you in a slumber. And we'll go home and pray about the slumber. Is this too simple or is this okay? All right. Not let me get ready. Realize that he has already seen you as ready if he has reached out to you. Verse 6. I opened to my lover, but he was gone. My heart sank. I searched for him, but I could not find him anywhere. I called to him, but there was no reply. Have you ever felt like you missed it? You ever felt like you missed God calling you? Have you ever felt like you missed that God opportunity and you just made the wrong decision and when you walk through the wrong door, you realize he wasn't there. Anybody ever been there? If you find that you, have, you may have missed an opportunity or calling or the knock, you've got two choices. You can go back to sleep or you can go start searching. You can go back to sleep or you can go start searching. Matthew 7, 7 through 8 says it like this. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking. You will find it. Keep on knocking. The door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks the door will be open. See, there is not only a truth that God knocks at your door. If you miss that, he wants us to come knocking on his See, we think if we missed it, that's it. No, no, no. He says, I can make all things work together for the good of those who seek me. Because you may have missed it, but you can still seek it and find it. 
I'm, I, I'm, I'm too young or I'm too old or I've missed it all my life and I've lived this whole life of not serving God and I've got so much to catch up on. No, you don't. He says, I can redeem lost time. Time ain't nothing for God. Well, I've wasted the past 30 years. Well, he can make it work as if you have been stewarding the past 30 years correctly. All he wants is a yes. All he wants is to get in the room. You see, grace is when you miss it, you can still go find it. That's grace. I'm going to say that one again. Grace is when you miss it, you can still go find it. She says, I couldn't find him. He was gone. There was no reply. See, it's really easy to go back to a sleepy slumber when there's no evidence of favor or blessing or an answer. You ever been in those times in life where you're asking for favor, you're asking for a blessing, you're asking for a sign, but you don't get favor, you don't get blessing, and there is no sign? And what we do is when we don't see signs, when we don't see blessings, when we don't see favor, we go back to our slumber of our everyday thing, and we stop seeking God because we feel like he gave up. And God's like, no, 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 no. You just said no so much that I want you to keep knocking. I want you to keep searching. And the fact that you gave up so easily tells me that you don't want me. You see, the slumber of the marriage relationship with the church and the groom is that God says it's available. But I want you to put a demand on it. I want you to love me. Think about the first, very first verse of Song of Solomon. Like, kiss me with a thousand kisses. We've stopped giving the kisses to our beloved. We've stopped worshiping him, praising him, giving him credit for all the glory that we have. And then all of a sudden, he starts asking us to do things, and we tell him, God, now's not the time. I've got this thing. I'm going this way. And before you know it, you open a door, and you find that God's not behind it. And then you can do one of two things. You can go back to the bed or walk to the door and start searching for him. You see, true lovers of Christ love him, and they don't become sleepy just because there's no immediate response. We search him out until. You see, faith is, I feel he isn't here, but I know I'm not alone. You ever felt like God's not here? You ever felt like in that moment, like, God's not with me? It's, let me just give you some comfort. It's actually quite normal sometimes for you to feel like that. Faith is, I'm not being led by what I feel. Some of y'all need to take that for even earthly relationships. Don't be led by how you feel. Be led by truth. And that's what's going on with God and the knock. He ain't here. I don't feel he's here. He's not in the room. That's not true. He's with us. I can't see him. Go find him. Because he's somewhere. Is that okay? Now remember... She's dreaming, and she starts to feel really guilty at this point, as probably we all have. And we actually are about to see her guilt played out in this dream. So this is what she says in verse 7 and 8. The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat me. These are the good guys now. They bruised me. They stripped off my veil. Those watchmen on the walls. 
which is kind of funny because there's a lot of people in here that call themselves watchmen on the wall, so y'all better watch out for them people. <laughs> Verse 8, make this promise, O women of Jerusalem, if you find my lover, tell him I'm weak with love. Her search ends in disappointment. She didn't find what she was looking for, and the watchman didn't help her either. She was beat up for simply trying to search for the beloved. And oftentimes, we spend so much unnecessary time beating ourselves up from missing it instead of embracing true repentance and moving forward. We go out searching, and through the searching, we're just beat up. We're waiting on God to forgive us. We're waiting on God to show us we're okay. Repentance is not waiting on God to forgive you. Repentance is changing your mindset about a miss and move forward in the truth that he has forgiven you. You, you, you can't say, I'm waiting for God to forgive when you've simply given him everything. He did it the moment you gave it. That's repentance. God, I missed it. Here it is. Okay, awesome. Let's move forward. But we beat ourselves up. We start pointing out all the insufficiencies. We start highlighting all of our insecurities. And in the search for God, you feel like the most small, unworthy, unnecessary person in the kingdom. And that is not how God sees you. They removed her veil. The veil was her badge of modesty and covering. They were treating her as a common prostitute who had no relationship with the king, all because she missed one knock. You ever beat yourself up and say, I guess I'm just not in a great relationship with God because you missed one knock? Stop believing that lie. Grace steps in and mercy steps in and says, hey, there's, I'm still accessible. You think about the parable where you had the, the tree in the garden and the, they, the, God basically wanted to cut the tree down and mercy or Jesus comes in and says, hold on, let's give it one more year. That's exactly what the knock is. You don't answer, God backs up and mercy comes in and, and says, you can still come find me. The relationship is not cut off. But what happens also is that many times in life, the watchmen, the priests, the preachers, the, the church people, the ministers, us, oftentimes we highlight and point out all that's wrong instead of calling out who we are that you're actually no longer convicted of. People are coming to you for advice and all you do is say, well, you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have done this, and you're this, and you're that, and they leave beat up when they came knocking for God through you. Yeah. Remember, you're the temple. So what's wrong with them coming to the temple with their stuff? They're not coming to the temple for you to affirm their horrible state. They're coming to the temple because they want to be cleansed with holiness and righteousness that you are supposed to be wearing. And they've come to the watchman, and the watchman spend more time beating up people than highlighting what's good in them. If I can just speak very clearly, you want to know how we're going to win homosexuals to true purity? By stop beating them up for the fact that they're homosexual. You, want they, you, know what they, you know what they need to see? They need to see Christians who don't agree who love them better than the ones who do. That's, 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 that's I can't believe I caught it. That, that, is, that, that is where the church needs to be. What? That's, that's grace. 
We, we need to be the absolute love of God. Yes. In all things. Many times in life we don't let him in and we spend more time convinced we're not worthy of a covering robe of righteousness than believing we're covered in his righteousness. We, we beat ourselves up too much. We've got to stop doing that. Now, what she said in verse 8, if you find him, she tells us to the women of Jerusalem, tell him I'm weak with love. In a moment, she went from being overwhelmed with his presence through all these chapters to aching in the absence of presence. And it all flowed from just not letting him in. We get overwhelmed in the presence of God in corporate gatherings. But when he knocks to come into your office, your conversations, your decisions, we don't say yes, and we wonder why by Friday we're saying, ugh, I need church. Because I assure you, he's knocking to get in everywhere. He wants to be involved with how you handle that deal. He wants to be involved with how you handle a boss that treated you horribly. He wants to be involved in every single place. He wants to be involved when the, you know, with the rated R conversations in the workplace. He wants to be in all that. And the moment he knocks and you say, not here because I'm a different person than church, that's when you start to, I ache and I'm weak in the absence of his presence. You want to know why? Because you didn't allow him to be present. That wasn't his decision. That was yours. Where's God? Maybe you should ask yourself, why didn't you let him in? Because it's not a God problem of wanting to be with you. It's simply a, will I open the door? If we would spend more time allowing God in than highlighting the reasons we need him, perhaps a lot of the issues in church would be gone. Let's just be honest. Sometimes the world looks more unified than believers. And we're expecting them to come here. In 2023, we are in a day and age where you can literally do whatever you want any day of the week. And we're expecting people to choose this over anything. Which is especially hard for us because we're crazy people meeting on Saturday nights when every social event is on a Saturday night. Let's, I mean, this is called what it is. I mean, that takes a lot of commitment, right? If they're going to want to choose this over everything else, we have got to be the most purest form of love that they will ever experience. And that means letting him into every part of our lives. Forgiveness, humility, patience, long-suffering. Will you suffer through a relationship you don't want to be part of for the promise of their redemption? If you're called to it. Is this okay? Okay. And sometimes... God won't even knock anymore until you get some things in order. Look at this in Jeremiah 11. It says in verse 13, look now, people of Judah, you have as many gods as you have towns. You've got many altars of shame, altars for burning incense to your God Baal, as there are streets in Jerusalem. 
Pray no more for these people, Jeremiah. Don't weep or pray for them. I will not listen to them when I cry out in my distress. Maybe you're searching for God, but he, he has put his hand on the handle of your door called Holy Spirit to convict you to lay down the idols you built so that you are postured correctly for him to start knocking again. Let me say that again. I don't feel like God is here. I don't feel like God is with me. Well, it's probably because you haven't let him in. And then you get to the place of, well, I don't feel like I feel him anymore. I don't feel like I see him. I don't dream about him anymore. Like, I don't have this longing for him anymore. Well, the Holy Spirit is putting his, the, this, God's putting the Holy Spirit on the handle. And the handle sounds like, get rid of the idols. Because he's jealous for that room. And he don't want to share it. Why would he not to come into your chambers of intimacy when you have more intimacy with your TV show than you would with the Almighty? He doesn't, he doesn't want that room. And for the record, I'm not saying it's bad to watch TV shows. What I am saying is if your TV show is airing live and a moment God says, I have a demand on you, are you willing to say, I have a priority? And you put that in any situation. Well, I'm hungry. Well, fast for a couple hours and go serve God. Right? Is this making any sense? Hmm. A jealous God does not want to share a room with your idolatry. God told, God told the people in Ezekiel 5, you've defiled my temple and now I will cut you off and I will show no pity. And if the temple is you, grace is there, but it does not allow you to keep your temple dirty. It gives you never-ending, grace gives you never-ending ability to allow God in as a result of cleaning up the dirt. And for those of you who think this is just Old Testament concepts, I'll show you what it says in the New Testament. James 4, 8 through 10. Come close to God, God will come close to you. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Do you see what it just said? He said, wash up because your loyalty is divided. Humble yourselves and draw close to me, and then I will draw close to you. And a lot of times, he's not drawing close because you're not drawing close. And the reason he doesn't see you as drawing close is because you're drawing close really dirty. And he says, you need to wash up. Your temple's messed up. Your temple's defiled. Look at all the things you're giving yourself to. Wash up, draw close, and I'll come. He wants to be close to you, but God does not want to share you. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for a God that is so jealous for me. I love that song. He is jealous for me. He is jealous for me. He doesn't want me giving anything else. He wants every decision to be filtered through the love relationship with God. Everything. Wash up and draw close. Look at verse 9. Why is your lover better than all the others? O woman of rare beauty, 
What makes your lover so special that we must promise this? Remember, she just said, would you please tell my lover that I'm weak. I need him. I'm weak with love. I want him. So they're saying, can't you just settle for someone else if he ain't coming back? Do you hear that? Can't you just get some other lover? Why, why do you want this one? That's exactly what the church does most of the time. God leaves a room so we create God. We have the best lights, the best cameras, the best services, the best preaching, and God doesn't even exist in the room. Because, oh, this looks like a great lover. And the church has become more obsessed with putting on great services than getting on their knees and saying, I've got dirty hands and I need them washed. I want God to come into this room. That song, when you walk into the room, everything changes. It's not just a corporate room. If you allow him to walk through the door into the rooms of your life, everything will change. You got to stop depending on an altar call prayer and start saying, God, I want you in my room. They're saying, why do you long for him? So why, why is he so special? And then she responds. This is verses 10 through 16. I'm going to explain them. Has this been okay tonight? Yeah. Believe it or not, I've been talking an hour, but it feels like 20 minutes. It's a, that's crazy. Woo. My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is fine as gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They're set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? She saw his lips as myrrh, but all she could think of was dipping her own hands in it. His arms are like rounded bars of gold set with beryl. His body is like bright ivory glowing with lapis lazuli. If I pronounce that wrong, don't text me. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately like the noble cedars of Lebanon. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover, my friend. I'm going to explain what all this means very simply. Dark and dazzling. Some versions will say white and ruddy. It's speaking of a, a bridegroom with perfect health, full of life, and full of power. She loved him for his character and his accomplishments. Better than 10,000. It was actually referring to that he was the highest banner and victory is his. Head as fine as gold. Talking of the divine attributes of life and glory. Wavy hair as black as raven. Speaking of his power and prestige. Because back then the glory was in the length of your hair. Remember what they cut off Samson? His beard. Look, I'm going to skip to that. Cheeks like spices. You know what it was talking about? Spices on the cheek was actually a beard. It was referring to prestige and glory. Eyes like 
doves set like jewels of milk. The eyes were pleasant to look at. She was describing it as the contrast of the iris and the white of the eye. So she was saying, his gaze is pleasant. I can look into his eyes all day and all night. Lips like lilies with myrrh. Glorious words. Great teachings that come out of his mouth. Arms like gold. He's strong. He's established. Body like bright ivory. Rich with love for his people. Legs as pillars of marble. Power to stand his ground and being immovable. He's posture like the cedars of Lebanon, or he has the highest character glorified in the heavens. His mouth is sweetness itself. He's the mediator, the one who speaks and guides us. You see, in short, she can describe everything about the greatness of her lover, her beloved, the king, because she has experienced it from intimate relationship. And some of you need to remember that. He is perfect. He's full of power. He has the highest character. He is, has victory over all. He is life. He is glory. He is power. He's prestige. His gaze is perfect. He is glorious. He is wisdom. He has the best teachings, the best word. He is strong. He is established. He is rich with love. He is immovable. He stands on his ground. He has the highest character. He is glorified, and he is my mediator, and he loves me enough where I can say yes to him. And if all you are focused on is disappointment, I say get lost in the attributes of a God who chose you as worthy. And he's just doing this. And that God that she just described thinks of you as worthy enough to knock on your door. I think we need to remember that. He could knock on any door. He's knocking on yours. Let him in. He has a call on your life. Get out of your slumber and say yes.